Friends, today's text from the book of Daniel focuses on the Babylonian monarch Nebuchadnezzar, to whom Jehoiakim, king of Judah, surrendered in the year 597 BC as the Babylonian Empire was the great superpower of that day. At that time, the Babylonians carried the king along with about 10,000 captives of the, the more, most capable sort of leadership class back to Babylon, along with many temple treasures as well. And the king's uncle, Zedekiah, was installed as ruler in his place. Well, 10 years later, in 587 BC, Zedekiah then rebelled against Nebuchadnezzar. And after a long siege, Jerusalem and the entire nation of Judah fell again. At this time, the Babylonians destroyed the city of Jerusalem and the temple itself and took about a thousand captives back to Babylon. The state of Judah, that southern kingdom with its capital in Jerusalem, had ended forever, as had the Davidic dynasty. So the book of Daniel records the story that Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian ruler, had a troubling dream, as it turned out about the future of world history that left him shaken. How do you view the future? Your future, the future of our church, our nation, our planet. Even as Christians who have hope, aren't we sometimes pessimistic about the future, especially as we wrestle today with the COVID-19 pandemic, and the current economic downturn, and a politically divided nation, to mention just three of our challenges. Now, many people today cynically think that history is random. It's going nowhere. And indeed, if it has any direction, it's in a distinctly downward direction. Many people wonder whether our planet has a future with the pandemic, the economic downturn, global warming, and the ever-present danger of a nuclear conflagration which could end human life on our planet. Other thinkers and entire civilizations have viewed history as cyclical. Uh, the ancient Greeks were one, but the example I want to use with you today is uh, Hinduism, that ancient Hindu philosophy, which has as one of its core principles the reality of samsara, the endless stream or wheel of birth, death, and rebirth. It applies, they believe, not only to people, but even to heaven itself and whatever gods may reside there. Now, for some people in the West, reincarnation sounds interesting. Hinduism, though, sees it as a curse, as a problem, as something from which people yearn to escape. And in Hinduism, that escape is called moksha, a Sanskrit word meaning release. Now, to put this in more modern terms, remember the film Groundhog Day, starring Bill Murray and Andy McDowell some years ago, a romantic comedy. In the story, a cynical weatherman, Bill, finds himself reliving the same day over and over again when he goes on location to the small Pennsylvania town of Punxsutawney to report about their Groundhog Day celebration. Now, Hindus feel much the same frustration as did Bill Murray in that film. Instead of viewing history as cyclical and directionless, the biblical narrative sees history as linear, 
moving to the fulfillment of God's saving plan. Now, how can we be assured history is linear and not cyclical? Well, here, here are three arguments. They may not convince you, but they're worth thinking about. As much as we'd like to believe the premise of the story of Marty McFly in the film Back to the Future, we are simply at present unable to travel back in time. We also know, friends, that things fall apart. Our clothes wear out, our cars break down, our hot cups of coffee or tea go cold, our bodies show the effects of aging. So the biblical narrative sees history moving towards God's redemptive plan. Well, back to our text in Daniel. Though Nebuchadnezzar stood unrivaled in power at that particular time in the 6th century before Christ, he still felt a deep and gnawing insecurity. Accessing his own sages and seers, the king demanded that they both interpret the meaning of his recent dream and also tell him its contents as well. Now, the Babylonians had a long tradition of accessing vol voluminous dream books to guide them as they interpreted dreams. But Nebuchadnezzar's demand was unreasonable. They not only had to interpret the meaning of the dream, they had to tell him and remind him of its contents as well. Understandably, they recoiled from such an assignment and trembled in fear. They protested in verse 11, the thing that the king is asking is too difficult and no one can reveal it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with mortals. Nebuchadnezzar was so demanding and unreasonable that in a fit of rage, he threatened to execute all of his sages and seers unless one of them met his demands. The tension builds as the hour of execution draws near. And hearing of the crisis, one of the Hebrew exiles, Daniel, called Belteshazzar, requested that the king give him time and that he would meet the king's demands. Daniel shows extraordinary courage and yet at the same time remains humble about his own limitations. For Daniel, it's not a question of study and learning. Because Daniel knows that all true wisdom comes from a source beyond ourselves, from, as he says, the God of heaven. Evidence of that is that Daniel immediately informs his three Hebrew companions of the crisis he's in and asks them to prayerfully seek God's mercy so that the four of them, along with the rest of the wise men and seers of Babylon, might not perish. Oh, let's think for a minute. Why did Daniel get involved? He's likely concerned about the needless slaughter of these wise men. And though from our perspective, they were badly misinformed about religious truth, being polytheists, worshiping multiple gods, rather than monotheists, the one living and true God, these seers are using the resources they know about to try to be of service to the king. Now, it's likely the reader is supposed to see in Daniel's involvement one fulfillment of God's promise to Abram in Genesis chapter 12, that through him and his descendants, all of the families of the earth shall be blessed. In this case, even pagan seers. Daniel is expressing the concern of God Almighty for these wayward people desiring they should come to know the truth of God. Well, the resolution to the crisis is reported simply and matter-of-factly in verse 19. Then the mystery about the dream and its interpretation was revealed to Daniel 
in a vision of the night. And Daniel responds with an act of worship, offers God a prayer of praise, and says, for you have given me wisdom and power and have now revealed to me what we asked of you. For you have revealed to us what the king ordered. Then Daniel spoke to a royal official named Arioch, charged with executing the seers and sages, and he ushered Daniel into the king's presence. And when asked by Nebuchadnezzar if indeed he is able to tell him his dream and interpret it, Daniel answers by bearing witness that although no wise man can meet the king's demand, quote, there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. He then humbly confesses, this mystery has not been revealed to me because of any wisdom that I have more than that of any other living being. But in order that the interpretation may be known to the king and that you may understand the thoughts of your mind. So with that very lengthy introduction, let's hear our text today as Leslie Van Dordrick reads for us from Daniel chapter 2, verses 31 to 45. Today's scripture reading is from Daniel chapter 2, verses 31 to 45, from the New Revised Standard Version. Daniel speaking to King Nebuchadnezzar about the king's dream. You were looking, O king, and lo, there was a great statue. This statue was huge, its brilliance extraordinary. It was standing before you, and its appearance was frightening. The head of that statue was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. As you looked on, a stone was cut out, not by human hands, and it struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were all broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the statue became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This was the dream. Now we will tell the king its interpretation. To you, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, the might, and the glory, into whose hand he has given human beings, wherever they live, the wild animals of the field and the birds of the air, and whom he has established as ruler over them all, you are the head of gold. After you shall arise another kingdom inferior to yours, and yet a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over the whole earth. And there shall be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron. Just as iron crushes and smashes everything, it shall crush and shatter all these. As you saw the feet and toes partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it shall be a divided kingdom. But some of the strength of iron shall be in it, as you saw the iron mixed with the clay. As the toes of the feet were part iron and part clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. As you saw the iron mixed with clay, so they will mix with one another in marriage, but they will not hold together just as iron does not mix with clay. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall this kingdom be left to another people. It shall crush all these kingdoms and bring them to an end. 
and it shall stand forever, just as you saw that a stone was cut from the mountain, not by hands, and that it crushed the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. The great God has informed the king what shall be hereafter. The dream is certain, and its interpretation trustworthy. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. In our text, Daniel first recites the contents of Nebuchadnezzar's dream. It involved a giant human statue or statue of a person. Its head was made of gold, its chest and arms of silver, its torso and thighs of bronze, its legs were made of iron, and its feet were made of both iron and clay. And then some sort of mysterious cut stone struck the statue, and like an atomic blast, the statue was reduced to tiny fragments and dust. A mere puff of wind could, could carry them away. That's the content of the dream, and now here's the interpretation. Nebuchadnezzar, Daniel said, was indeed the statue's head of gold, to whom the God of heaven had given the kingdom, the power, the might, and the glory. Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom would be followed, however, by three later kingdoms or empires. The second would be inferior to that of Nebuchadnezzar, meaning it's made of silver. The third would be made of bronze and would rule over the whole earth. And finally, there would be a mysterious fourth kingdom, strong as iron, that would crush and shatter its enemies. However, made of both iron and clay, it would also be weak and vulnerable. Now, we could spend time today speculating about the identity of these kingdoms or empires, but the point of today's text is what comes next. Daniel reports in verse 44, And in the days of those kings, really meaning after those kings have appeared on scene, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall his kingdom be left to another people. It, meaning this, this mysterious cut stone, shall crush all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Nebuchadnezzar understood Daniel's message personally as good news, as his reign seemingly would be uninterrupted and would continue on for some period of time. Ironically, Daniel informs the monarch who was end of the Davidic dynasty that his empire will end as will its successors when God's kingdom arrives. Well, in grateful response to that good news, Nebuchadnezzar gave Daniel and his three Hebrew friends positions of power and praises Daniel's God, though he doesn't come to faith in that God, apparently. Nebuchadnezzar's dream about God's kingly reign, including the consummation of God's reign at the end of human history, is a theme, friends, running throughout the Bible. In fact, I think the theme of God's kingly reign or the kingdom of God is, in fact, the central theme of the entire Bible. In its early ancient history, Israel had a theocracy. God ruled by revealing God's will to patriarchs, judges, and prophets. The Ark of the Covenant for example, represented the throne of the invisible God and was the sign of God's continuing presence among God's covenant people. And in time, the Israelites requested that the prophet Samuel appoint them, quote, a king to govern us like other nations. 
while people held out hope that the Hebrew king would be a faithful and just ruler uh, who would rule with righteousness as God's son and surrogate, that rarely happened. Most Hebrew kings were failures, unfaithful, greedy, prideful, and unjust. Well, in spite of that, through Daniel, God announced that in future, God would visibly reign as king over the whole earth and usher in an everlasting kingdom. So that is our hope. Jesus of Nazareth took it a step further. He promised that the time of fulfillment had arrived and that the powers of God's kingly reign were present in his person. And in fact, that his miraculous healings were signs of this kingdom's inbreaking presence and power. He also looked to the future when he would return to defeat God's enemies and judge humankind and consummate God's reign as king. So the New Testament looks forward to the time when the faithful will be set free from our bondage to sin and death, and the environment itself will be freed from its bondage to decay. In the Revelation, John describes a time when the heavenly voice, voices announce, the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Messiah, and he will reign forever and ever. So friends, history is moving toward that ultimate goal, that ultimate end. Well, we don't have a timetable or a map, we have the assurance that the one who created us and redeemed us in Christ will bring his loving, salvific plan to fulfillment. At the end of his seven-part Chronicles of Narnia, C.S. Lewis brings the whole saga to an end with these words. For us, this is the end of all the stories, and we can most truly say they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All, the, all their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has ever read, which goes on forever in which every chapter is better than the one before. Friends, Nebuchadnezzar's dream about 2,500 years ago points to the future consummation of God's kingly reign, the central thrust of Jesus' own ministry. Those final events defy description in a simple, straightforward way. However, when we recite Jesus' model prayer, the goal of God's redemptive plan comes clearly into view as we ask, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So may it be. Amen.